Welcome to Something Historical. Hey guys, so I know it's it's been a while since we've put something out, and uh, life's been busy and whatnot, but it's good to be back at it again. Um, the idea that I was kicking around for today is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, but I've never really been able to put it into the right context. I think it's just such a weird story and I've never really saw myself as a good storyteller. And so I never really felt that I could do this weird scenario justice. The part about this story that I love the most is it's so relatable and yet it's also so unrelatable at the same time. There's parts of this where you will think to yourself, yeah, I get it. Like, I understand that. I almost would do the same thing. Or perhaps you have done the same thing. And then there are other parts where you just think, what in the world is going on here? Are, are these people crazy? Are they stupid? What are they doing? So in my best way possible, I'm going to present this as best I know it. And... If you can relate to this, awesome. If you can't, at least you get to hear a cool story about something that really doesn't happen that much in the modern world. If this happened today, if this scenario with similar people played out today, I was trying to understand, I was trying to figure out if it could actually happen. There are very few things in our modern world that, that we think that there's no way that could happen today. No way. Because our world has changed so much. But I don't know if this is one of those things. If this scenario happened today, it would almost be like a con job. It would be like from a con man TV show. In fact, this features, this kind of plot and the twists feature in con shows or movies. Con man comes in, fools everybody. Maybe it's out of necessity or maybe the con man is just a terrible person. Who knows? People fall for it. There's the big reveal at the end. Oh, he's a con man. Uh, he's been, you know, putting a ruse. He's been pulling the wool over all of our eyes. And sometimes you're sitting there in the audience, you're watching this or reading it, hearing it, whatever, and you're thinking, these people are so dumb. How could they fall for this? He's obviously a con man. He's totally pulling the wool over their eyes. But how do we know we're being conned? How do we know that we're not a willing participant? What happens if the con is better than the life that we previously had? What happens if you discover that 
oh, I'm being conned. And you willingly go along with it anyway because it may benefit you. Those are all the things that I've wrestled with in this weird, bizarre story. So let's jump into this. The first thing that I have to point out is this is from a long time ago. It's, it's from the 16th century. So we're in the middle of the 1500s. And it's hard to relate to that type of lifestyle, specifically when it comes to interactions between people. But I would remind everybody that people haven't changed. You know, humans are still humans. We may use different tools and do different things, but our motivations, our interactions, our opinions, the way that we think really hasn't changed that much. So this is one of those situations where you could transport yourself back to the 16th century and all that's going on, and you would be very similar to those people. So it's not difficult to consider this in a modern context. But most of what we know about this story is limited. Keep in mind that in the 16th century, we don't have a lot of great info on average people's lives, peasant life, rural life, whatever we want to call it. And so a lot of the stuff that we have to draw on to give us evidence on how this event plays out is limited. So we've got to draw some conclusions that may or may not be true. We've got to poke around in between the lines a bit. We've got to infer some things, but it's still a very amazing story. The majority of the information that we have about this chain of events comes from one of the people who was actually involved in the story. It's one of those situations where you are involved in something that's so memorable, so interesting, that you pretty much have to talk about it afterwards. you got to write it. You won't believe this. Crazy. So, in this case, the person who gives us most of our information is a guy by the name of Jean de Corras. And he was a French jurist. Um, Corras writes what's called the Arrest Memorable. And obviously that would be a memorable arrest. And the memorable arrest that he's talking about was a situation of impostorship. It was a con job. Now, Corras did a lot of legal work. Um, he was a member of the Toulouse Parliament, so he participated in a lot of trials. And as far as a jurist is concerned, um, you know, he is a judge who, at this time in France, is very influential in shaping culture, the legal reform, uh, contributing to things like constitutional law, battling with the relationship between Protestantism and Catholic, because that's an issue at this point in the 16th century. So Corras is really 
busy. And he's a kind of an influential person along with the other jurists of France, especially in a place like Toulouse. Toulouse was a fairly large place. So he's dealing with a lot of legal issues, but this was memorable enough to him. And so he writes in the arrest memorable, our greatest references to the story, the things that we go off of to really describe. Now, he writes it after the fact. He doesn't sit down right away and write arrest memorable once this event, this trial, is over. Because there will be a trial, and he's involved. He writes it a little bit after the fact, but again, we can still assume that his record is fairly accurate. And so, the arrest memorable is written. And it talks about a peasant community, hard to use the term peasant there, a rural community in southern France. There was a family who were called the Guerre families. They actually started off as the Daguerre family. And in 1527, the Daguerre family moves from the Basque region of France, the sort of Atlantic coast region, right over the border from Spain. It had been a part of Spain, and it had been independent, and it was part of France. It's kind of one of those blend areas that has all different types of culture. You know, it's got a, it's on the water, so it's got a lot of sailing and trading and, you know, maritime culture. It's a very eclectic place, but it's also very separate. People from the Basque region speak Basque. Um, but they, the Daguerre family moves from that ocean region, the Basque region of France, to a, a more inland region known as Artigas. They moved to a town called Artigas, fairly rural. Artigas was a smaller town, a little bit south of Toulouse, and it had about 60 to 70 families. And the majority of those families made their living by growing millet, wheat, oats, grapes, things like that. They were farmers. So the Daguerre family moves. The father was named Sanchi Guerre. It's one of those cool names that's got that X in it, and you don't really know how to pronounce it. It's spelled S-A-N-X-I. But from my best estimate, that's Sanchi Daguerre. And his wife, we don't know her name. Not surprised on that one. And then they have a son whose name is Martin Daguerre, and uh, Sanchi's brother, Martin's uncle, that would be Pierre Daguerre. So they moved to Artigas, and moving is something that we can relate to. A lot of us have moved, especially when you're young. Moving can be a challenge. You've got to learn new things, meet new people, fit in with a new crowd in the new neighborhood. So one of the ways that the Daguerre family does this is they drop the duh. The, the, the local language customs of the Basque region, duh, was pretty pretty familiar, not in Artigas, so they drop the duh, and they just become the gears, which is not super important. But just highlighting how the the Gare family is doing a lot to fit in in their new region. Um, you know, their son, Martin, who is pretty young when they move, he's probably in his teens, you know, he's probably he probably knows many languages, probably knows Basque for sure. Probably Spanish, maybe Gascon, probably French for official documents. If you're going to open a business, probably need to know French. And that's exactly what the 
gears do. When they get to Artiga, Sanshi has uh, four more daughters. No more sons. Four more daughters. And then his brother, Pierre Gare, is married as well. And, you know, what does the family history, why is it important? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Sanshi and Pierre decide to divide up their property when they move to Artiga, which was not a custom in the Basque region, but hey, uh, when in Rome, so when they're in Artiga, they split up their property between the two brothers. And so one of the things that has to happen fairly quickly is to establish roots. They've changed their name, they've had more children, they've divided up their property. It's time to really do the one thing that ties you to other people, ties you to neighbors, ties you to a business interest, and that, of course, is marriage. Marriage for love, obviously, is something that is fairly modern. It was more likely especially in the 16th century, that you'd get married for a practical purpose. And so Martin, the son, is married to a young girl, and I'm talking really young, Bertrand de Rolls. Now, marriage is more of a contract than a modern marriage, and the de Rolls family's pretty wealthy, which is probably why the Gares wanted to make this arrangement. The best book that I've found on this topic is from Natalie Zeman Davis. And Zeman Davis talks about how Martin and Bertrand were unusually young in this marriage. People got married young. Teens, late teens, you know, by 20, you probably should be married. Especially if you're someone with property and wealth, you got to secure that, make an alliance. And so Martin supposedly is 14, and Bertrand, his new bride, is supposedly either 9 or 10. Now, I got married when I was 25, and I can tell you that sometimes I think that was too young. Not that I'm regretting doing that, certainly not. But I don't know. Is anybody ready for marriage at 25, let alone 20, or 14, or 10? If this makes you go, oh, I get it. But the de Rolls are wealthy, and the Gear family's new. And so this could be, probably is, their best way to fit into this new community. And Zima Davis points this out. She says that Bertrand later reveals her age during the trial. So the question of how old are you may not have even been asked. And Davis says that Bertrand's young age would have made this marriage illegal. It would have been illegal at the time under church law. But the marriage must have been allowed or, you know, don't ask, don't tell, because of everything that was being exchanged, the goods, the money, and we have a good idea of what this dowry would have been like. Uh, not only is this going to create a strong regional economic alliance, because the de Rolls were super wealthy and the Gares had built this successful tile working business. So, you know, it's kind of like an investor in your business almost, but we got to do that through marriage. But Davis says the dowry was probably 50 to 150 livres and a sizable vineyard. 
they get a vineyard in the deal. So a lot of money in a vineyard changing hands. You know, let's seal this deal up. Those young, crazy kids can figure it out in a minute. But this is where things start to get interesting. And if you're thinking, well, hello, 10-year-olds and 14-year-olds getting married, there's no chance that works out. It's, yeah, that's definitely true. But think about the pressures that are on young kids. I mean, if you're around young people, like I am quite a bit, you know all the stress that they go through, everything that's demanded of them, the decisions they make, and they screw up more times than they succeed, and that's an important part of life. But 14 and 10 and marriage is just a recipe for disaster, especially with the pressures that come from the region. So Bosque Customs said that the newlywed couple would live with Martin's father. The, the new married couple moves in with the dad of the husband. And so that's the one thing that we, can, that we know of that the gears keep. And so that's what happens. There's a big banquet held after the wedding. The couple is escorted to Bertrand's marriage bed by the crowd because, you know, yay, that's not too awkward. Supposedly they're given these aphrodisiac drinks to ensure the consummation of the marriage, which for 14 and 10-year-olds, I feel like it would be awkward enough already. But here we go. Keep in mind, they're 14 and 10. So as best we can tell, absolutely nothing happens in the marriage bed. Probably for good reason, because they're 14 and 10. <laughs> and at first it's like, okay, we get it. You know, you're a little young. This will happen. There's time to have children. Just because we wanted you to have kids right away to secure this marriage, make this contract solid, really solidify this relationship, doesn't mean that it won't happen eventually, but it doesn't. And that's when things start to build up to a breaking point. Martin and Bertrand are going to remain childless for eight years. And then... Everybody in the region starts to wonder why. Is it because Martin is not interested? Is it because Bertrand can't? Is, can Martin not? There was this theory that it was uh, pretty common. Impotence was blamed on witchcraft or spells. And so people were like, oh, mm, he's been cursed. Or something's going on. He can't do it because there's a, a witch around or something. So supposedly Martin was cast under a spell that left him impotent. Or how about the fact that they were married at 14 and 10, and maybe they didn't really, I mean, I don't know, maybe they didn't really want that. Anyway, if you think about the 16th century in a broader context, and I'll try to do this Sparknotes version so we can move along with the story because it, it does get really interesting here fast. The 16th century was super confusing times. And, I mean, you know, being a teenager is difficult anyway. But keep in mind that the Reformation had recently happened. And so families and areas are trying to figure out, you know, do we go Protestant? Do we stay Catholic? What's the deal? Um, there's war going on all over the place. We're still getting outbreaks of, of the plague. Um, you know, governments are fighting with nobles still. 
and the church still trying to decide who's got what power, where, things like that. So, you know, it's difficult as a teen in the world, not just because of everything that's going on, but now you're in this young marriage. So life for Martin Gare is not easy. You know, he's got the typical pressures of moving as a young child. He's got language barriers. He's got business pressures. He's got marrying at such a young age. Supposedly, Sanchi, his father, and Pierre, his uncle, had pretty strong tempers and dominant personalities. So if you've ever grown up with a bombastic figure in your household, that can be overshadowing and stressful and things like that. And, you know, keep in mind, he grew up as the only son with four sisters. So if anybody's going to make this thing work in this new location, pressure's all on Martin. Now, this is not a reason to absolve Martin for anything that he's about to do. But, again, some of this story can be relatable. So, the DeRolls family wanted Bertrand to separate from Martin because the marriage supposedly wasn't consummated. There's no children for eight years. And so the DeRolls family's like, yo, something's going on here, and we need a child, and rumors are starting to fly about Bertrand, and we don't want to deal with that. And we got a lot of money wrapped up in this, so if this isn't going to work out, let's end it. They want the separation. Supposedly, Bertrand could remarry in three years according to church law, so she'd still be at childbearing age. She would have to get out of the marriage to, to Martin, and then three years later, she could remarry and then boom, pop a kid out right away, and the DeRolls would be happy. I mean, they've invested a lot in this. Don't forget the vineyard. But being married for this long and not having children was so humiliating, it's hard to imagine her not thinking about it, right? I mean, they're starting to blame things on witchcraft here. So Martin was definitely probably the target of speculation, jokes, teasing. Couldn't have been easy for him. Couldn't have been easy for Bertrand. She was probably not too eager to conceive a child either, though. I mean, she probably definitely played a part in this whole delay, eight years of no children as well. So when her family urged her to pursue a separation from Martin, she refused. She didn't want it. Or if she did want it, she didn't at least, she didn't reveal it. Davis suggests, and this is a really key part, Davis suggests that not only is Bertrand probably just a really independent person, but she's probably also really concerned for her reputation. Because even though it's legal to remarry in three years, it still doesn't look good. And if she sticks it out and then maybe does have a child, I mean, she's like the wife of wives, right? She lived in this awful marriage, difficult marriage. She hung in there. She's, she's loyal. She's dedicated. She's also, you know, very, very religious from this standpoint. The church would love this. But I think the big thing is Bertrand is going to demonstrate so much realism in the story. Bertrand de Rolls is the most honest and realistic character in this whole chain of events. 
Because if I'm a 16th century woman, and I know that in this very dominated man's world, that I need somebody to depend on and care for me and things like that. I can't just go off and start my own business. I can't go off and own my own property. I don't inherit anything. If I have a son, the son's going to get everything anyway. Bertrand probably realizes that her best bet is to stay in this loveless marriage and just kind of stick it out, but get some safety and security with it. She could get rid of Martin, and then three years later, who knows? Maybe nobody wants her again. And then she's going to end up being a spinster or destitute or something. Her family might take care of her, but, you know, there's a stigma around single women over a certain age in this period of time, especially in cultures like this. So Bertrand's probably very realistic. This may be the best that she gets, and it may also be the safest that she gets. But her refusal to have the marriage annulled in the many years before conceiving a child with Martin speaks to her practicality. Had she dissolved the marriage, she would have to marry again and bear another child, and maybe she didn't want to have a kid. Davis says that she would get credit for her virtue, staying in a difficult marriage and being a good wife, being a good woman. And that was something that was worth its weight in gold in cultures like this. And she probably also grew close to Martin's sisters and and other members of his family. So, you know, there's more that goes into this decision than just that. But then things change. For the better or for the worse, after eight years, Martin and Bertrand finally have a son. And they name him Sanchi after Martin's father. So let's add this to the pressure pile. Martin now has family pressure, business pressure, marriage pressure, village pressure, peer pressure, and now suddenly he has a kid. I think most marriage counselors would tell you that if you have severe problems in your marriage, having a child probably doesn't solve things. It probably makes things even worse. And so here we go. Davis says that Martin would have had numerous releases for stress and unhappiness. I mean, he could go on business trips, religious pilgrimages. There were probably fencing and boxing clubs in that area. And there's some good evidence that Martin had some solid friendships. People knew him. People got along with him, for the most part. And it's never uncommon for men to leave their families. That's probably one of the sadder facts of life, but it does happen. It happened before the 16th century. It happened during during the 16th century, and it's still happening today. It was not uncommon for men in the 16th century to leave their families. Some marriage contracts had details specifically saying who would take care of the wife if the man left. So in the actual contract, when the marriage was created, in the beginning of the marriage, they said, yeah, if you leave, because they recognized it was a realistic possibility. So the fact that Martin and Bertrand's wedding contract didn't survive 
doesn't answer the question of whether it was in it. But it's probably unlikely that the provision was added to the contract. They were so young. 14-year-olds just don't get up and leave. So I think you're probably getting what's coming. Martin's going to leave. He's going to disappear. He's going to take off, and no one's ever going to see him again. And obviously this has a huge fallout, not just for Bertrand and their son, but for the whole Gare family. The whole thing starts, as best we can tell, obviously, with the marriage and then the child. But the, real, the ball really gets rolling. When Martin was 24, he supposedly stole, and I'm using air quotes, because when you take things from family, it's always like, are you loaning it to me? Am I allowed to take whatever I want? Am I stealing it? He supposedly steals a small amount of grain from his father. He needs some grain. I don't know if it was to sell or to eat or whatever. And Davis suggests that since they were living in the same household, Martin, Bertrand, the son, and the father, Sanchi, Martin's father, that there might have been some power struggle going on. Martin, now that he's has an heir, he's he's the son. You know, he's growing up. He's twenty four. He's trying to exert his influence. There's a you know they're 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 butting heads. Bosque men specifically were known to be honest, and theft was pretty unforgivable in that culture. And so Davis says, quote, for the fear of the severity of his father. Without a word, Martin leaves. He leaves Bertrand, he leaves his father, he leaves his son, and he disappears. So, I mean, are we really surprised? And People kind of saw this coming, right? Not only the marriage failing, because it happened so young, but the move and the pressures of life and things like that. It's not uncommon for fathers to leave. It's a modern problem that we can understand. It's a rather unhappy marriage. It's a pressuring father that Martin has to deal with in Sanchi. And if the story stopped here, it would be quite unremarkable. If this is it, if this is what happens, and Martin leaves, and Bertrand has to live the rest of her life with her son without a husband in her life, that story's happened millions of times. That's not unordinary. At this point, if you think that Martin is the main character in this story, I can't really tell you no, because he is a big part of this. But I would say that Bertrand is the main character. Bertrand is the one to watch. Bertrand is the one that really makes this interesting, because Bertrand Rolls has been living in a loveless marriage with pressures of having a child, living with her in-laws, all things that can be difficult. And then now she's abandoned. And when we say abandoned, literally abandoned, think about this. Bertrand has no legal recourse against her estranged husband. She can't do anything when Martin leaves. Catholic canon law 
did not allow an abandoned wife to remarry. So Bertrand can't remarry. Even though she knows Martin's not coming back. It could be a year, two years, whatever. Can't remarry. The Protestant Huguenots, the, the French Protestants, who were then winning a lot of converts in France, definitely in this area of France as well, would have allowed such a remarriage unless there was proof of death. If, 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 if they could prove that Martin was dead, then there you go. Any, any whether it's Catholic or Huguenot, you can remarry for sure. But, you know, keep in mind the big picture here. Bertrand was 20 years old. She's got a young kid. She's 20. Martin leaving, in fact, may have been a small relief for Bertrand. Keep in mind, the marriage was most likely unhappy. And however, it, it left m many legal and social problems for Bertrand. Young Sanchi and the Gare family. I mean, the, the kid is abandoned too. And the Gare family, who was relying on Martin to be this heir of this new successful tile works business and this relationship with the Rolls family, who were so wealthy... They're all kind of abandoned by Martin. Definitely Bertrand and young Sanchi first, but then the Gear family as well. So Bertrand does what probably was most common in these situations. Bertrand stays with the Gear family. She stays under Sanchi, the older Sanchi's authority. Martin's mother and father die, though, unfortunately, soon after he leaves. His mother dies, and then the big impact for the Gare family, Sanchi, dies. So he never sees his father again. Supposedly, Sanchi forgives Martin on his deathbed. He names Martin as his heir in his will. So despite the fact that Martin disappears from his wife and his child and his, and his family, his sisters, his estate, everything, Sanchi still is giving Martin his possessions in his will. He's got no other sons. He's not going to give it to the daughters. That doesn't happen. Even though Martin's not even around, he may never come back. He's probably gone forever. He's still the heir. Bertrand could not inherit. So, in Martin's absence, she and Martin's property passed to his uncle Pierre, Sanchi's brother. Bertrand can't use any of it. She doesn't get any of it. It's all Martin's. Yeah, it's screwed up and weird and, and bizarre, but this is the period. So Pierre gets everything. And this must have been common enough to have these procedures. I mean, these protocols and regulations show that this absence of an heir was handled a lot. Because there wasn't some sort of legal issue. There was, there was no religious issue here. It was just like, uh, yeah, matter of fact, this is how we do it. When the husband takes off and doesn't come back, this is how we do it. So Bertrand, the young Sanchi, and Martin's sisters all now fell under Pierre's guardianship. He's the boss. Pierre actually <laughs> marries Bertrand's mother because... Bertrand's father had died previously, and so Martin's uncle Pierre now decides to marry Bertrand's mother, 
So here we go. This, you know, this alliance is still strong. And this is when Bertrand might have tried to get out of the marriage. And if she went through the right paths, she probably could have. Why now? She's cared for. Her mother is now married to, you know, Pierre Guerre. So she's probably going to be living in that household anyway. Now might be the time to try to get out of the marriage. But protecting her son's future inheritance and her reputation, don't forget that, her reputation seems to be foremost in her mind. If she gets out of the marriage now, she loses everything that Sanchi will inherit when they can prove that Martin is dead. Because when Martin's dead, young Sanchi gets just about everything that Martin was going to get. And her reputation takes a big hit now if she gets out of this marriage, which again, seems silly. So she lives with Pierre Guerre. Davis says that she lives, quote, virtuously and honorably while Martin is away. There's some guesses as to where Martin goes. A long time goes by. A long time. And then suddenly Martin comes back, but it's not him. So, in the summer of 1556, a guy shows up in Artigas and he claims to be Martin Guerre. He looked similar to Guerre, supposedly. He knew about Guerre's life. He, like, knew his friends' names. Davis talks about how he Guerre meets some people on the road going into Artigas, and he's like, hey, I know you guys. And they're like, do you? And he's like, yeah, I'm Martin Guerre. And they're like, oh, really? And then he, like, supposedly, like, says, like, I'm going back to Bertrand or something and calls these people by name. And they're like, well, it's got to be him. We haven't seen him in forever, and he kind of looks like him, and he knows us. So he convinces most of the villagers He's Martin. He's Martin's back. And the real litmus test for this con obviously is going to be when he sees Bertrand. Because if anybody's going to know, it would either be his sisters or Bertrand. Remember, his parents are dead. And so supposedly, again, we don't know a whole lot about this. It was probably private. I, I can't imagine how this would have happened. People, you know, people come into the village and they tell Bertrand Martin's back. And that, I mean, the emotions that must run through that moment for Bertrand, I can't even imagine that, right? How does she feel? Happy? She relieved? Angry? Upset? I mean, what are the emotions that she's going through right then? I don't know. It's tough. So, supposedly, she sees him and meets with him. And we don't know what occurs. As they say in Hamilton, no one else was in the room where it happened. We don't know what happens when this 
supposed Martin Gare meets with Bertrand. All we know is that this is not Martin Gare. Who is this guy? And the other thing we know is that when they emerge from this first meeting together in years, Bertrand says, yeah, it's Martin. This is him. And she knows that it's not. She knows it's not him. But she says it is. Now, Martin apparently goes home, meets Pierre and says, hi, you know, I'm back, Pierre. And Pierre's like, oh, it's been a while, looks like him. Okay, fine, it's him. I think the Gears were just happy to have the heir back, right? They, they wanted the family to continue. They wanted things to be held down. Yes, Martin's back, the heir's back. Fine, you left, you abandoned. People did that. Okay, we're over it, let's go. The, the sisters all needed a little bit of convincing, it says, but supposedly they got on board with it eventually, too. Things are good. The town eventually gets back into this Martin. Yeah, it's him. We, we know it's him and things like that. The new Martin lives for three years with Bertrand and Sanchi. And guess this. They have two children together. Two children. Now, only one of them survived. It was their daughter. Martin claims the inheritance. And he actually brings a lawsuit against Pierre, his uncle, for the other part of the inheritance. Because I guess Pierre was like, I'm not going to give this to you because something's fishy going. Something fishy's going on here. I'm not going to give you everything. And then Martin says, Everybody knows I'm Martin. This is when Pierre becomes suspicious that something is up. Because apparently the old Martin wouldn't have sued for property or inheritance. But this Martin does. He becomes suspicious. And he and Bertrand's mother try to convince Bertrand that Martin is an imposter. You're being conned. Something is going on here. This isn't right. Supposedly, there was a soldier who had passed through Artiga and saw Martin and said, oh, that's not Martin. The real Martin lost his leg in a war somewhere. And the town was like, that's crazy. He's just, you know, a passing drunk. And supposedly, Pierre went to confront Martin about this report and say, you know, this guy says you're not him. And I guess... Things were about to get really violent, they were escalating. There's going to be, a, you know, there's going to be a moment. And I guess Bertrand cuts him off. Bertrand intervenes. Bertrand works really hard. And again, this is why she's the important one in this story. Bertrand works really hard to keep things the way that they are. I mean, she had a child with this person. Whoever this is, this this guy's inheriting everything. The, the tile works business, the land, the money, the vineyard that was in her dowry, her children. Who is this guy? She knows it's not him. So 
the big question from my perspective, and I can't answer this. I don't know. I'm not in her head. What is Bertrand doing? She's going along with a con? She's she's playing along with this guy? Or does she really honestly believe this is him? I mean, you got to think that if this happened today, and you were involved, whether you're Martin, I guess the guy pretending to be Martin, I should say, or Bertrand, you got to believe that at some point you're going to say, this isn't him, right? you got to figure that out. you got to know that. The con always gets figured out in the end. Usually. There's got to be a moment where she's like, this isn't him. If, if it happens right away, that makes the most sense. If it happens later, or maybe in a moment of weakness, he reveals his true identity. The soldier passing through town must have tipped her off something, right? She's got to know it's not him. Why is she playing along then? Why is she doing this? Maybe she actually loves this guy. Maybe this marriage is better than the one that she had with the actual Martin. And if she goes along with this and says, yeah, this is him, her life might be considerably better. What would have happened when Pierre died? It would have been a bunch of girls and her who could inherit nothing. The return of Martin Gare, whether it's Martin or not, was probably a godsend for her. And if anything, we saw in the beginning, Bertrand is practical. She understands the world that she lives in. She gets that this might be her best opportunity. So, is she playing along? Is she complicit in this? It starts to seem so. In 1559, three years after this new Martin shows up, the villagers actually accuse Martin of arson. There was this incident where a couple of things got burned, and supposedly they didn't know like who did it, but then there was some shady evidence found and it pointed to Martin and the town at this point was starting to like figure things out. People people start it's almost like they're coming out of like a coma or something or amnesia is like wearing off. People are like coming up to him and saying like, hey, I think you're not the real guy. People are starting to figure it out. And so three years in, they accuse him of arson and then it moves into impersonation. The town starts to figure out, Pierre specifically starts to figure out, this this dude isn't him, is not it. Now, if you're the con man, at this point, don't you just get up and leave, right? You've got three years of a good con, you made some money, you got some inheritance going, but Pierre's still alive, and, he, you know, the heat's just on. Why does this dude stay around? That's a good question. Probably because... Bertrand is still on his side. He goes to trial. And in 1560, he's acquitted of arson and impersonation because Bertrand testifies on his account. He's the real guy, which is a huge risk because now she is legally, legally tied to this guy. She's gone on record, or whatever the record was, saying, yeah, this is him. It's a big deal. So, in the meantime, Pierre has been doing some investigative work. And he discovers the identity of this person. He figures it out. Supposedly, 
the guy's real name is Arnaud Dutille, and I'm probably messing that up, but his nickname was uh, Pensette. And supposedly he was from a village nearby. People knew of him. It might have been working a different con. And he obviously had to leave. And here he is in Artiga. And so Peter basically figures out this dude's a con man. He's His real name is Pensette. He's not Martin. And so Pierre actually brings up a new case, a new impostorship case. But there's not like double jeopardy here. What it is, is he has to go through a different avenue now because this guy was already acquitted. So he does this all in Bertrand's name. He he pretends to be or says he is acting on the account of Bertrand, which would have made sense because the way that the law worked for women here in the 16th century, particularly in France, it would have made more sense for the man to bring this suit forward. So he's claiming to act in, on Bertrand's behalf because only the wife could have made this claim. And so there's this moment where Pierre and Bertrand's mom go to Bertrand and say, look, we know this dude isn't Martin. We know it's a fake. We found his real identity. We know it's a con. We don't know why you've been going on with this, but it's time to give it up. And faced with the mounting pressure and evidence against him, Bertrand reluctantly agrees. This is not him. Now for her, this is a huge demoralizing moment because she went along with this and even swore that it was him she had a child with this guy she's been living with him this is crushing for her it has to be but she eventually agrees the evidence is just too overwhelming it's not him so in 1560 there's a case and it's tried in the french court in Rieu. bertrand has to testify this testifying by Bertrand um, is probably worked out. She's probably getting up on this stand and you know, imagine the courtroom drama and here's the, the star witness. It's it's Bertrand Rolls. And she's probably saying something like, I I believed him. I mean I, honestly I thought it was him. What else can she say? No, I knew I knew it wasn't him. I was going along with this the whole time. Um and so the, the trial continues, and, and Bertrand is testifying and says, yeah, I, I really believed it was him. And then when I realized it wasn't him, when I realized he was a fraud, uh, you know, I, I, I filed this complaint. But the interesting thing is, is that they really have to dig into the back. I mean, they really got to prove whether this guy is Martin or not. So they really have to dig into their past history. They got to get into the early marriage. You know, before he returned, what was life like? What were you guys doing? Uh, what was the problem with the children? You know, what happened before you left? And so Bertrand gives her side of the story. Here's what the marriage was like. Here's what we did. You know, here's the more intimate parts of our relationship. And then the imposter gets up and does the same thing. And the crazy thing is their stories are almost identical. Their stories are almost identical about their life before Martin disappears before he comes back. 
And then the guy who is pretending to be Martin goes at Bertrand. If Bertrand is willing to swear that he is not Martin, then he'll give it up and he'll say, I'll find out. Execute me. And Bertrand doesn't say anything. This is her moment. This is her chance to, to get away from all of this and end this charade. The guy who's impersonating Martin says, if you swear I'm not him, if you really honestly believe legally in front of the court, say, this is not my husband, then he'll accept his fate, and she doesn't. They call 150 witnesses. A lot of them testify that they know Martin, they saw him, he knew things about them, including the sisters. The sisters testify. And then there were some that came in and testified to Pensetta's identity, saying that this guy's not Martin. He's Pensetta. We know him. He's a con man. And so with the overwhelming evidence, the imposter, Pensetta, is convicted and sentenced to be beheaded. Now, there is an appeals process, and so he immediately appeals to the parliament the court in Toulouse, which is a bigger court. It's kind of like going, you know, going up in, in court level. And he almost like countersues in a way because Bertrand and Pierre are brought up on charges of a false accusation, possibly perjury. You know, if, if anything, like most con men, the new Martin Gare is well-spoken. He has a lot of charisma, he knows a lot about Martin and his life, and he knows a lot about Bertrand, although she probably could have told him a lot of this. And so the judges in Toulouse, we already know one of them, are starting to believe that this guy is Martin, that the appeals case is actually going in his favor. That it almost looks like the, the Parliament of Toulouse is going to overturn this conviction. And they're starting to believe that Pierre and Bertrand perjured themselves. Maybe they were greedy, maybe they wanted the inheritance, whatever it was. The detailed questioning about Martin's past was intense. All of his statements were checked, and then checked again, and then checked again, and they verified everything, both legally and socially, and there are no contradictions found. So this dude has done his homework. He is literally about to be let off. Like, they're, they really are moments away from overturning this conviction and setting this guy free as Martin Gare, whether people believe it or not. And then, like, great, great drama. A guy walks into the courthouse in Toulouse with a wooden leg, and his name is Martin Gare. 